Speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Superman. Yes, Superman. Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman. Who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights the never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 150 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and this episode I'm going to continue my run through the Ruby Spears animated Superman show. The uh, first segment will contain the Superman episode by the Skin of the Dragon's Teeth and the Kent Family Album Story at the Babysitters. And the second segment will include Cybron Strikes and the Kent Family Album Story, The First Day of School. And uh, before I get to the business at hand, I have quite a bit of feedback to go through uh, this episode, more than I usually do. I'm going to start off with an Apple Podcast review, or uh, formerly known as iTunes reviews. haven't gotten one of these in a while and i clearly haven't checked in a while either as this as i am recording this on november 22nd 2019 and this review was left on september 10th 2019 and it is from jeff arnold it is a four-star review and the review is titled a labor of love for all to enjoy and uh jeff writes the only thing more monumental than the ambitiousness of this podcast is the actual execution He doesn't just say that he'll cover all of Superman's screen appearances. He actually does it. A true labor of love, and honest too. Not always towing the line saying everything featuring Superman was great. Great fun for fans of Supes. So, uh, I'd like to uh, thank you, Jeff, uh, for your review. I am glad to hear that you are enjoying the show, and uh, I like that he uses uh, the word ambitious to uh, describe my uh, mission on this podcast. That is not exactly the word I would choose uh, for it. Actually, I would choose two words, complete insanity. And I am well aware that this is a never-ending battle, so to speak, pun definitely intended. And I can't say I'll get to all of it, but I will definitely get through as much as I can. And I hope I've covered up to this point all of Superman's screen appearances. I'll just caveat this by saying I've covered everything that I know about, you know, aside from uh, commercials and uh, little things like that. There's uh, not much really to say about those. So I've covered everything I know about, even some unreleased stuff, and even the Brady kids. I mean, if I found that, I'm not sure if there's anything I haven't found. So it is a labor of love, and uh, I'm glad that it reflects in the show. So thank you, uh, Jeff, for your review. Uh, You too can uh, write a review on iTunes if you like, and I'll read it on mic. So uh, with uh, that being said, I'll move on to... uh, the next order of business, I got a couple letters. Uh, this letter here is from uh, Dave McElvenny. Dave writing in on Man of Screen episode 139. And Dave writes, Greetings, Mike. Well, these stories are certainly a marked improvement over those in, re- in the recent few seasons. The greater length obviously gives the stories more time to develop and the viewers get a bit more exposition. 
which is helpful with newer characters like Firestorm and Darkseid, and the new look of Brainiac. The Bride of Darkseid especially benefited from the longer story length, as well as being a two-parter. The introduction of Firestorm, complete with an explanation of his powers, his origin, and his nature as a fused being, was a real treat, as was the introduction of Darkseid. It was fun to see Firestorm as partly responsible for their predicament, as well as being the only one to resist the mind probe. The Wrath of Brainiac was pretty quick in introducing the robotic version of Brainiac and his skullship, which had only recently then appeared in the comics in 1983, so it made good sense that he gave a bit of an explanation of his new appearance, since many viewers might not have been familiar with it. Of course, we viewers could have all predicted that even though Darkseid and Brainiac worked together at first, the villains would eventually fall out or try to double-cross each other, because that's always the way for the bad guys. Even though Reflections in Crime was the weakest of these stories, it's still a fun story, even despite not having the flash. I'm looking forward to hearing more good stories from this season. Live long and prosper, Dave. As always, uh, Dave, uh, thank you for uh, writing in. And uh, yes, I do agree that the Legendary Superpower Show is a marked improvement over the seven-minute short episodes. Even though some of these episodes were shorter, there was a little more room for the story to breathe, and I enjoyed them a lot. And the... The introduction of Firestorm was definitely a treat. You know, Firestorm was never a particularly favorite character of mine, but I was always aware of him. And uh, I do like his uh, interplay uh, with the other members of the team. And having a younger hero gives kind of an audience uh, point of view uh, perspective for younger viewers. So I enjoy that as well. And being that the Bride of Darkseid took up two episodes, it did have a lot of time to dedicate to Firestorm's backstory, which I'm glad it did, you know. We are we known the Flash, Batman, and Aquaman and Wonder Woman for all this time. It's good seeing uh, the show take the time to introduce a new character. And uh, yeah, I also agree with Dave's comments on uh, the Wrath of Brainiac and uh, and the Skull Ship. Uh, I did like the fact that the show did take the time to explain uh, Brainiac's change of appearance. In previous incarnations, uh, things like that would not be explained. You would just kind of be asked to go with it as if it was always that way. So. I'm glad the show is, uh, I don't want to say it's a little more serious, but it's definitely uh, responding to viewers who might have questions about why Brainiac is so different. I mean, there might have been a lot of kids like me who not necessarily reading the comic books at that time and wouldn't know that the change would, was recently made in the comics. And uh, Reflections in Crime, I, I believe that was a story with the Mirror Master. I think that's the one where Superman, Batman, and Robin were, tra- were trapped in the uh, Mirror World. I think that's where we were introduced to peeping Superman as he looked uh, through a mirror by accident and uh, caught some woman in the shower. But uh, I really have nothing to say, further to say about that other than it was fun. So, thank you, Dave, for writing in. I have one more piece of feedback to address. This one is from Jack Bone, and the subject is Legendary Superpowers. Jack writes, I've been drifting away from the Super Friends in the early 80s, including some time without an ABC affiliate, but I must have seen part of these next two years. What I made of it, I don't know. I have I hadn't read any Darkseid comics or seen any Firestorm ones. In fact, when I first saw a Firestorm issue, I thought he was adapted from the TV series. What do I think of it now? I'm a bit bemused. Ever since the Super Friends was first described as formed from the cosmic legends of the universe, there's been a bit of overhype. So, so given Darkseid, for Superman to call him the, the most powerful leader of the galactic underworld is underwhelming. In the comics, Darkseid was first associated with Intergang, and it took a while to realize his full scope but I don't think the cartoon writers have a long game in mind. It will be interesting to see what actions Darkseid takes in the episodes. In these first episodes, he, Brainiac, and Mirror Master are just mean to the Super Friends. Admittedly, it's a good plan to get rid of the superheroes before beginning your crime spree, 
but I notice it allows the cartoon to get away without showing crimes that children can imitate, like bank robbery or tyrannically uh, subjugating a planet. The designs really got an upgrade. Brainiac and his spaceship and the spaceship Darkseid has looks like it would make a good toy, even if it's not very Kirby-ish. Speaking of not being Kirby tech, the Stargate design looks like it could have been a neat lever-operated iris on the wall of a playset. Jack. So, uh, thank you, Jack, for writing in. I'm glad to hear from you again. We hear from Jack uh, rather infrequently, and but Jack is uh, sent a feedback on a bunch of future episodes, too, uh, regarding the uh, the Legendary Superpower show, so I'm glad to hear from him here. And, yeah, I do agree that the Super Friends being described as from the cosmic legends of the universe is a bit of an overhype. And uh, Darkseid is generally not somebody I associate with the galactic underworld, especially the way you you know you think of Darkseid today. He's, uh, for all intents and purposes, the, the big bad of the DC universe, most powerful being out there. So having him dealing with crime is uh, not something uh, you think about too much. Such things you would think would be below him. You know, I could definitely be... Uh, would see concern about children imitating a bank robbery. Uh, I don't know what kind of children are uh, going to be able to tyrannically subjugate a planet. Those have got to be some special children. And uh, if Jack thinks the design's got an upgrade for this season, you know, I wonder what he's going to say about the upgrade uh, in the animation for Galactic Guardian Season 9. And yes, as far as uh, Darkseid, uh, when he first appeared being associated with Intergang, it did take a long time for Kirby to kind of realize what he had there. Or maybe Kirby always knew what he had, but it took a long time for the readers to... Uh, know what Darkseid's uh, potential was. And uh, no, he's right. The cartoon writers do not have a long game in mind. And it'll be interesting to see uh, what Jack thinks going forward about Darkseid's actions, which mostly uh, boil down to trying to get rid of the Super Friends and trying to marry Wonder Woman. So that's pretty much what Darkseid is up to during the course of this show. So seeing no further feedback, I'm going to close the mailbag, take a quick break, play a podcast promo, then I'm, then I'm going to come back with... Uh, by the skin of the dragon's teeth, and at the babysitters. Hang around, folks. Afternoon, everybody. Ryan! How's that baby treating you, Mr. Daly? Like Thanos, snapping his fingers at my bank account. In that case, how about a beer on the house? Sure, gotta give my mouth something to do between podcasts. Say, Ryan, I don't get how you have so much time for podcasting. Doesn't your wife want you spending time with the baby? Would you? (laughs) Truth is, I think she's a little worried about how much time I'm spending with the kid, ever since his first words were Dagobah system. (laughs) Now she wants me to go out and do something mature, something productive, and most of all, something lucrative that can support the family. So you're going to... Podcast about cheers, yeah. That kid's not going to start college for 18 years. I got time. <laughs> Cheerscast, the podcast where everybody knows your name. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Network. All right, welcome back, folks. The episodes of this segment had an original broadcast date of October 1st, 1988. And we're going to start with By the Skin of the Dragon's Teeth by Karen Wilson and Chris Weber. And our synopses are brought to you by supermanhomepage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. Having bought the Great Wall of China, Lex Luthor invites the Daily Planet staff to an exclusive interview, all as a plan to use Superman's powers toward his own ends. Once he gets Lois, Jimmy Clark and a Chinese governmental representative inside his excavation site beneath the Great Wall... I am very 
very frightened that Mr. Luther is searching for the horde of Lung Wang, the Dragon King. Lung Wang? A legendary dragon that looted China and terrorized the country. It is said the Emperor Qin used magic to imprison him. Wex create the cave-in, which he knows will bring Superman to their rescue. So, a prearranged accident brought Superman right on schedule. <laughs> and not a moment too soon with the Chinese government watching every shovel full of dirt I excavate. Go ahead, begin phase two. I still don't get it, Lexi. How did you manage to buy the Great Wall? Why, that's like buying the, the, the Grand Canyon. Miss Morganberry, in this life, everything's for sale. For the right price. Ah, the Grand Canyon. Why did you want Superman to come here? I thought you didn't like him. Not like Superman? The man who's about to save me three years of excavation and 50 million dollars? <laughs> Bite your tongue. But, um, Lexi, if Superman digs that tunnel through the Great Wall, won't he find out about your secret treasure? Shh, Miss Morganberry, remember, treasure talks our little secret. And leave the thinking to me. It's not your strong suit. To save them all, Superman tunnels through rock walls and accidentally discovers an ancient stolen treasure of the Dragon King. In all my years as an archaeologist, I have never seen anything like these statues before. They are so lifelike. This place, these statues, and Luther have one thing in common. They're all creepy. It's like they're all running away. But from what? Running away. Of course! It's the curse! Curse? You mean like King Tut's tomb? Yes. According to legend, Emperor Chin cursed this tomb to keep thieves out by turning them to stone. But the curse also kept something terrible locked away inside. Luthor steals a jeweled tooth from a stone dragon, bringing it magically to life. In order to stop the dragon, Luthor, at Superman's insistence, must become an unwilling hero. Mr. Kent, you're alive! Not for long, Mr. Scoop Swiper. Superman saves Beijing from ancient curse by Clark Kent. What is this? <laughs> A first-hand account? I don't care what you've been through, Clark Kent. There's no way you're going to bump my Pulitzer Prize-winning story. Not after I worried myself sick over you, and I thought you were stoned, and thought... Alright, so... So the first thing we learn when this episode starts is that Lex Luthor has bought the Great Wall of China. Okay, that got my attention. I guess one of those things that billionaires do, they uh, buy things that are not for sale. I am not entirely sure who owns the Great Wall of China. I guess I always kind of assumed the Chinese government did. But I don't necessarily uh, think that uh, they'd be willing to sell it to Lex Luthor. Well, but for the sake of our story, that is exactly what has happened. So some guy straps a bomb to a boat, and uh, that's going to take uh, Lois, Jimmy, and Clark to uh, China. Then we've got some Clark Kent shenanigans as he runs over a cart of cantaloupes and then trips over a rope and falls flat on his face. Yeah, this series is definitely going to play up the uh, Clark is a klutz motif that, in my opinion, was kind of overused during the course of the Reeve movies. And it's going to be a little overused in this show, which draws heavy inspiration from Many versions of Superman, like I said last week, draws it from the Reeve movies and Bronze Age and Silver Age comics, especially with regards to the Kent Family album and post-crisis John Byrne stuff. 
So the explosion knocks Clark into the water where he changes into Superman and he uses the mast of a ship as a shovel to put out the fire. Oh, okay, that's a good use for one. But even before that, we got a great shot of Superman coming up out of the water. One of the things I'm really liking here is the uh, animation. So after all that, Superman flies off and uh, reappears in the ocean as Clark, you know. Fortunately, Superman was able to do his job fast enough that uh, while Lois noticed Clark was in the water, I guess Superman did his job quick enough for uh, no one to realize uh, how long Clark was in the water. So nobody was really overly concerned that he may have drowned. So Alexa, who's uh, lounging around at the Great Wall, you know, he, he just bought it. He wants to hang around. He wants to sun himself on the roof or something. And the Chinese government is kind of watching what he excavates, so... They sold the Great Wall to him, but they're not really happy about him being there. So, And apparently uh, Lex wants uh, Superman in China with them so that he can uh, dig a cavern. Is it Superman is not necessarily somebody Luthor can call on uh, on the phone and say, Hey, Supes, you want to come help me out here? Superman is not going to help Luthor with his uh, plundering of the Great Wall's treasures. So there's a woman here at the base of the Great Wall who hears Lex's plan, uh, trips over some shovels as she runs off. She... Well, tripping over the shovels really did. Didn't get her caught, but it made uh, Luthor notice that somebody was there. So in China, uh, Lois Clark and Jimmy meet this woman. That She's the Minister of Culture. And she's afraid that Lex Luthor has uncovered something that could destroy China. Whatever it is, I'm sure he wants it just to destroy Superman. I'm sure he could care less about China. So apparently we're going to find out that Luthor is looking for the Dragon King. Which sounds pretty ominous. Doesn't sound like something I'd want to mess with. But Luthor needs something to destroy uh, Superman and... The Dragon King is uh, where he's going to go with this week. And they're having this conversation in, in, in a cable car. And I love how they're so engrossed in uh, their conversation that no one notices this guy climbing up the cable car. You don't even have to see him. I don't know how, first and foremost, I don't know how anybody didn't see him climbing the cable car. I mean, this guy wasn't small by any stretch of the imagination. And you would think that his sheer weight, I mean, you don't have to weigh a ton to rock a cable car that's suspended in the air. It should have shook a little extra, jolting Jimmy and the uh, the woman here, but uh, nope. This guy just climbs up, and they don't notice anybody's up there until uh, he starts sawing on the cable with uh, with a back saw. So Jimmy finally hears the sawing, and he, and, uh, he gets up and yells at the guy. Lois wants Clark to do something, but all he does is pass out, for obvious reasons. And Lois is going to do something, like slide along the wire and swat him with her purse. And uh, swatting him with a purse is enough to get uh, this guy to uh, parachute away. And uh, that doesn't stop Lois from falling. So, uh, so uh, fortunately, uh, Clark is woken up in time to uh, turn into Superman and catch Lois. So, uh, good on him. And after he catches Lois, I really like the save of Superman uh, grabbing the cable car, which is really nice. He grabs the cable car, has Lois on one hand, the cable car on the other, and he uses his seed vision to weld the uh, support back together. Very uh, vintage Superman and this show really is a comic book brought to life. And that's really what I want from, from an animated cartoon. It's basically a movie comic book. And I've long believed, I even, I mean, I even still do to some extent, believe that animation is the best way to showcase these stories because you, even though live action has come a long way and maybe it's a little more respected than animation is, there are still things you can't do in live action economically. In animation, you can, you can do just about whatever you want. So, so, to me, animation is still the best way to display superhero stories, and probably because you can also mimic the look of the comic book to some extent. Live-action live superheroes are always going to look like people, and not like they walked out of a comic book. So, 
I do love how Superman recommends them going inside the cable car to uh, Jimmy and the Cultural Minister, who are still both kind of hanging on to the outside of it. And he gives a little uh, George Reeves uh, wink there to uh, to give a nod to that show. Again, paying uh, tribute to all different versions of Superman on this show. So eventually everybody gets to Lex Luthor. And as Luthor starts talking, I like how Clark, uh, ever the diligent reporter, starts uh, taking notes almost immediately. So they're getting a tour of this underground cavern, and it's filled with a bunch of statues that look like they're terrified. The poses these people are in, they're screaming, shielding their eyes, uh, whatever they're looking at, they don't want to be looking at it. So the government official brings up uh, Emperor Chin's curse, which turned everyone to stone. And she also mentions that the curse keeps something underneath the great the Great Wall. Something like a dragon. And that's about when Luthor causes the cave in and uh, Clark conveniently gets cut off, which he does. And this gives him a chance to turn into Superman again. And then we get a nice shot here of Superman digging a tunnel, acting like a human drill. He's kind of got his legs and his uh, arms out, kind of spread eagle. And uh, he's spinning as he flies. And as Superman spins and drills, you see the human characters walking behind him. And they basically just kind of run through the hole and... Now they're in a new cave with some gold and a statue of a dragon. And that's when everybody suddenly realizes that Clark is gone. So this is where we learn that Luthor set all of this up so Superman can drill the hole to the cavern. And uh, Luthor makes a comment to Superman about how uh, about his drilling ability and kind of asks if he needs a job, which kind of was reminded me of uh, when Luthor tried to buy Superman services in John Burns' Man of Steel number 4. So, Luthor believed that he owned all of these uh, Chinese treasures. And, you know, like I said before, China would never sell the Great Wall. And all these treasures under the wall for that have been there for thousands of years perhaps should belong to the Chinese as part of uh, their cultural history. But, as you know, that is not something that Lex Luthor cares about. So, he pulls a tooth off of the statue and, uh, pulling off the dragon's tooth, lifts the curse and brings statues to life. Because, of course it did. And this is when Superman finds himself fighting an ancient statue, and it's not easy. He is, uh, he's holding his own, but you can see that he's making a great effort. It's hard to, uh, for him to lift these, uh, giant stone hammers that these statues are trying to pound him with. Luthor won't let go as the dragon comes to life. And while everyone tries to run, the statues grab Luthor. Superman mentions that they are magic, which, as we've seen in previous incarnations and still continues to this day, Superman is. Vo- I hate saying he's vulnerable to magic, but I guess he is. I mean, it's not really a weakness. It's just something that his powers don't protect him from. But even though his powers aren't necessarily working on the statues, he can at least throw them around a little bit. And uh, now we have a real-life dragon with a magic eye beam that can turn things into stone. So Superman goes after the dragon, and Lois tells him to try to find Clark, too. So at least she's thinking about him. At least she hasn't uh, completely forgotten about about Clark. But, you know, Superman... uh, has to uh, shake a dragon, and I'm kind of hoping we're going to get a decent fight out of this. You never know, dragons might have souls. So, Superman's uh, excuse is uh, Clark has turned to stone. He actually took the time and found some clay, and he built a a stone statue of Clark. And I love the little details of the animation, as while Superman is telling them what happens to Clark, the statue nearly falls over, and uh, Superman at least... uh, Sands it up so it doesn't shatter all over the floor. That would be embarrassing uh, to uh, let your to lose your secret identity because the uh, clay sculpture that you made fell over and shattered. So the next plan is that Superman is going after the dragon to return the tooth to its mouth. 
So that's what Superman's going to do. And meanwhile, he sends everyone after Luthor. And since the human characters can't leave Clark, they take the statue with them. And he's heavy. And I love Lois's instruction. Don't break him. Which I guess is more apt than you would realize. So here's the dragon reaching, wreaking havoc on the Forbidden City in Beijing. And, you know, I love how Superman looks in this show. The flying shot of him toward Beijing shows how muscular he is. And now uh, we can't uh, fight the dragon. And we learn here that the dragon probably has a soul because Superman's not punching it. But he does spin it around and throw it in the water. So at least there's that. And then Superman just kind of leaves the dragon in the water and goes after Luthor because, gotta remember, Luthor has the dragon's tooth. So meanwhile, Lois and Jimmy find Luthor and Morganberry and uh, the Clark statue flies out of the sled, rolls down the hill, and knocks them over. You know, a very uh, screwball physical comedy moment here as uh, basically Clark takes care of the villains by rolling into them. Well, I say Clark, even though it's not really Clark. It's made up to look like Clark. I mean, that's something out of Superman too. Just very uh, Richard Lester slapstick right there. And then after all that happens, the Clark statue goes into the water. So Superman shows up, grabs Luthor, and flies off of him. Meanwhile, the dragon's out of the river and flying away. And I love seeing Luthor panic. And uh, Superman's got a stone leg after he's hit with the dragon's eye beam. Yet somehow he's still able to move it. That must be some uh, exertion of super strength there if he can move a stone leg. Then they beat the dragon by putting the tooth back. Luthor is miserable, and I love that. And then we end with Luthor returning everything to, to the Chinese. And then uh, kind of out of sight of everybody else. And with no further need of the Clark statue, Superman destroys it. Clark comes back with a story he wrote. And Lois rants and rants at the episode ends. It's really great. You know, I thought you were broke. I thought you were stoned. Blah, 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 blah. I actually cared. And you pull this crap. Well, she didn't actually say that at the end. But that was pretty much the uh, gist of it. So that was another enjoyable episode. The series is pushing all the right buttons so far. Robots, aliens, dragons. What else would a kid want from a Superman story? The only thing this episode didn't seem to have any Daily Planet stuff, but we'll get a little bit of that in the next episode that I cover on the other end of the uh, podcast promo break. But before that, the Kent Family Album Story at the Babysitter by Sherry Wilkinson. And our synopsis is as follows. Martha and Jonathan leave Clark with the babysitter for an evening. When told he has 10 minutes before bedtime, Clark uses his heat vision to stop the clock. He easily carries the TV set into his bedroom when, he, when he's finally taken to bed. Then he flies on top of the refrigerator or cookie jar when he gets hungry. Okay, so this is kind of the next milestone in uh, Clark's life, I guess. We've been adopted, we've gone to the supermarket, now we're going to the babysitter's house. And, uh, yeah, it may be 1988, but this teenage uh, girl is drawn awfully uh, suggestively with her uh, short shirt and her Daisy Duke shorts on here and those little slip for shoes. Wow, how'd that get through? So Clark is a little older, I guess he's like three or four maybe. And he's watching a Western, which was uh, popular in the uh, 50s and 60s. So Clark has it until about 8 p.m., which is a reasonable bedtime. That's when I put my two-year-old to bed. As the uh, synopsis said, Clark uses heat vision to uh, screw up the clock. And uh, Melissa, that's the babysitter's name, she can't figure out why it isn't 8 o'clock yet. So we're finding out that uh, child Clark is a little bit of a smartass. So she caught from the news that it's 9 o'clock, and uh, because apparently... That one clock that Clark screwed up is the only clock in the house. There may not have been multiple TVs and stuff back then, but you know what? There were multiple clocks. Just saying. So Clark is caught, and you should see the angry look on his face when he gets caught. So what does he do when Melissa's not looking? He does what any toddler would do. He goes out, takes the TV, and brings it into his room. 
If my toddler did that, I would probably scream. Like, I'm still waiting for the day when she figures out the, uh, the way to turn the TV on in her room. Fortunately, I have the remote where she can't reach it. So Clark is messing with this poor girl a great deal. I kind of feel bad for her, actually. And then Clark is a little bit of a handful. And uh, now Clark wants a cookie, and uh, well, she wants a munch. She's hungry, too. She grabs a chicken leg, and she's just kind of munching on it in the middle of the kitchen, sho- showing a great display of manners. And uh, apparently she's waiting for her boyfriend to come over, which may or may not be a good thing with the uh, toddler stealing the house. But Clark used the uh, distraction to basically attack the cookies. And now he's on top of the fridge. All right, Clark, you're not very good at this. If this kid knew what he was doing at all, he would take the cookie to the bed with him and not sit on top of the fridge where he can get caught. You know, he's, like I said, quite the defiant one. And then after all that, he passes out on the floor of the kitchen and the kids take him home asleep. I am wondering why they didn't have the babysitter watch him at their house, but it is rather amusing to see Clark kind of befuddle this teenage girl who's probably, I don't know, 14, 15, I guess. So, another amusing uh, short tale. And, uh, the Superman stories are delivering, the Kent Family album stories are delivering, and I'm going to deliver you to a podcast promo break. Then when I come back, I'll finish things off with Cyber on Strikes and the Kent Family album story for Stay of School. Hang around, folks. It began with the return of an ancient evil. Ah! After 10,000 years, I'm free! It's time to conquer Earth! Alpha, Rita's escape. Recruit a team of teenagers with attitude. This is the story of five teenagers. Not teenagers! Yes, teenagers. Specifically chosen to keep our planet safe as the Power Rangers! Ranger Chronicles. Every Tuesday as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Alright, welcome back folks. The episodes of this segment had an original broadcast date of October 8th, 1988. And we're going to start with Cyber on Strikes by Buzz Dixon. And our synopses are brought to you by SupermanHomePage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. As Superman and Lois celebrate her birthday in the clouds, a giant metallic pyramid hurtles toward them from above. Catching the structure, Superman is confronted by an unfriendly cyborg. Who are you? I am called Cybron, and I am appalled at how primitive the people of this time period actually are. who turns himself into pure energy and disappears into the electrical wires. The pyramid is taken to a government facility where Jimmy sneaks in to to take photos. Cybron returns and converts Jimmy, Lois, and all the army base into slave robots. Lois and Jimmy discover Clark is Superman, but he takes them with him to Star Labs, where he devises a plan to trap Cybron inside a superconductor. Once captured, Superman reverts everyone back to normal, making sure to wipe clean Lois and Jimmy's memory of his secret identity. I don't think I'll ever be able to look at a computer chip again. Jeepers. I may not even look at a chocolate chip again. I just can't help but feel there's some big secret locked in there with Cybron. You don't want Cybron running around loose so you can find out, do you? (laughs) No, Jimmy. I guess it's one secret I can live without. Come on, let's go home. Up, up, and away! So this was an interesting episode, and uh, one of the things, and this is something I uh, took a bunch of notes on, and I don't know how many times I'm going to comment on it toward, uh, as the episode goes on, is this episode kind of reminds me of something that had not appeared yet. I get a very Cybron slave robots really remind me of the Borg from Star Trek The Next Generation, but the Borg do not make their first appearance on television 
for about seven months after this episode comes out. So, the Borg do not appear on television until seven months after this episode aired. So, there's no correlation between the two, but it's very interesting in how Cybron kind of assimilates everything to become his slave, much like the Borg will do in Star Trek. I'm not making anything of that. I'm just pointing out kind of the uh, little coincidence there, that's all. I mean, obviously it's something that came and went on Super Friends, but we all know what kind of uh, future the Borg had on Star Trek. So anyway, Superman, uh, like, <laughs> I mean, you should see this opening shot of Superman uh, setting up a table and chair in the clouds, and uh, they're fl- floating somehow, and uh, while sitting, uh, I don't know how Superman is managing all this, but he is, and an airplane goes by, and people are waving at them, because of course they are. Superman and Lois kind of dining in the clouds is something you expect to see uh, when you're uh, on final approach, I guess. So uh, now their date is going to be interrupted by Superman's hearing. And I like the waves that uh, seem to come out of Superman's ear to illustrate his super hearing. Obviously, obviously in-universe, it's not something that's visible to Lois, but it's a neat visual aid for the viewer to know this is coming over Superman's super hearing. It's easy to miss, but something a similar effect is used in... Uh, Superman 3 during the scene where Ricky gets lost chasing Buster when Clark is standing behind Lana you can see at least on the Blu-ray version you can that's probably the first place I saw it you can see like little uh, animated sound waves coming out of uh, Clark's ear so not only has Superman's super hearing interrupted their date but what was a clear day has now turned red and the sky is getting very uh, cyclonic some kind of cyclone forming in the air and it's a nice change and the cyclone looked good and uh Oh, by the way, this is Lois's birthday. She's having a birthday to remember as this glass pyramid thing falls to Earth. If it was a flat square, I'd almost think it was the Phantom Zone from the Reeve movies, but it's more of a pyramid. So Superman is carrying this thing through the city, and he uh, and it blows out Barry White's window, kind of knocks him over in his chair. You know, even a cartoon has got to have some kind of uh, amusing moment of somebody falling over. So Superman finds a field to uh, plant this thing down, and he gets it to stop just shy of some power lines. So uh, Lois and Jimmy track down Superman, who is trying to figure out what the hell's going on here. Superman identifies it as being uh, from Earth, but its technology is far advanced. Superman is about to say it's from the future when the pyramid starts firing around them and confuses everyone. What's uh, confusing me is how Superman knows this tech is earthly, but from the future. I mean, is there a sign on it that says, Earth from the future? I mean, I guess maybe he recognizes Earth Tech enough to notice a future version of it. I don't know. But but no, he just says it's from the future as if something like that is perfectly normal. I guess in his life it is. So now here comes Cybron, who looks like a reject from the Masters of the Universe toy line. He looks like basically a large robotic pair with a face. And uh, he's wasting no time as he fires a beam of energy at Superman and that knocks him over. So Cybron is a conqueror from the future. And he's going to... Uh, relay to his people how easy earth is to conquer and you know this show is really keeping the action going it goes right from action piece to action piece whether it's a fight or whether it's superman saving people it doesn't light up and it keeps you uh there's enough going on to keep you into it so again superman postulates a cybron from the future as the army takes the pyramid away we'll fly it to fort oliver superman we've got experts who can figure out what it is tell them to be careful i don't know what cybron wants but I can guarantee he's hostile. He looks so, so odd. Like he was part human and part machine. He is. He's a cyborg. But who could make such a being? Nobody today. But tomorrow, 
Or the day after tomorrow? Or a thousand years from now? Whoa, hold on, time out. Are you saying Cybron comes from the future? It's possible, Jimmy. Wow. In general, can I go to Fort Oliver to shoot more pictures? You're welcome to come with me. Miss Lane? No, thanks. I've got a story to file. So Jimmy has uh, got a little bit of love with him uh, sneaking up into uh, the fort through a window, and that's when Cybron shows up, melts the tank, and hits Jimmy with some kind of beam, which uh, puts a big uh, piece of metal on the side of his face, again, making him look like a, look like a Borg. So Perry's got all kinds of doubts about what's going on. This is amazing. Unbelievable. In fact, I can't believe it, Lois. But I was there. Cybron is a real menace, Perry. Uh, Mr. White, I'd listen to Lois. She's never been wrong before. Well, okay. We'll run it. But I don't want to cause any panic. Let everybody know that Superman's on the job. Meanwhile, there are bizarre reports something strange is happening at Fort Oliver. Check it out. Fort Oliver? That's where they took the pyramid. And Jimmy's there, too. Then what are you standing around here for? Get going! And uh, Clark defends Lois to Perry, and that's kind of gets what that's what gets this story written. Now Clark's a uh, defense of Lois. He go Clark will always go to bat for Lois, especially when he knows that she's right. So here comes now. There's a beam of lightning uh, turning everything into uh, into a robot, and uh, first a whole bunch of uh, military uh, soldiers have been assimilated, and uh, so eventually Lois and Jimmy are both uh, assimilated by Cybron. There's really no better word for it. <laughs> Trying not to use Star Trek lingo, but it's kind of hard not to in this situation. So, Cybron's plan is to alter the present to rule the future. And uh, since Lois is amusing, he tries to assimilate her too. And uh, Clark can use his powers here without being noticed. And he just kind of blows Lois out of the way of the beam and uh, heat vision with no one watching him destroy a pipe. So, it's clear that his powers are invisible as he used super breath and heat vision and nobody saw it. If people were able to see these things, he would not use them. So then we get a sudden shock when the robotic Lois pulls open Superman's shirts and reveals that she knows he is uh, Superman. I'm not sure how that information came to her. Maybe something uh, down through the uh, the robot network. I don't know. And also these uh, tanks have been transformed into some kind of insect-like creature. You know, I guess um, maybe the Cybron tanks look like insects, but they're kind of insectoid and uh, they're sh- shooting at Superman. And Superman is doing everything he can to kind of outrun this uh, cyber ray. And while he's at Star Lab, Superman is working on a helmet to stop the transmissions from Cybron. And when you look at Star Labs, literally no one is there. Everybody, when they heard that beam was coming, must have taken off and gotten the hell out of there because Superman has the entire laboratory to himself. And what I like about Superman creating something is that's a very pre-crisis silver. I know silver, maybe Bronze Age too to a certain extent. But Superman can create the tools he needs to solve a problem which flies in the face of the big brawler and unfairly so reputation that Superman seems to have. So Superman designed these helmets to stop Cybron's transmissions. Kind of like what happened at the end of Best of Both Worlds when uh, the crew of the Enterprise tried to block the Borg transmissions from Picard. So Superman is unconcerned that Lois somehow knows that Clark is Superman, and he plugs him into the computer so that he can find a weakness for Cybron, who, uh, like, like he said before, his plan is to assimilate Earth so he can be its dictator in the future. Almost like Star Trek First Contact. So Superman grabs a superconductor and he wants Lois and Jimmy to help him crab Cybron. And even they're still robotic, but they act as themselves, even though they, they're still riddled with robotic implants. And uh, if you're keeping score at home, at this point, Cybron has assimilated about 10 million people. 
So it's basically the whole world against Superman as uh, a tank catches him in a ray and Superman breaks out and flies off. And basically, uh, he calls out Cybron, you know, our reject from the masters of the of the universe toy line. So now Superman has made Cybron mad, and now he's traveling by phone line, which we saw him do earlier in the episode, even though I didn't take a note of it. And now we've got a big fight. Lois and Jimmy turn on the superconductor, and Superman seems to be wilting at Cybron's energy. But, as always, Superman saves the day, managing to trap Cybron in the superconductor. And then, after a few minutes, Superman figures out Cybron's computer and uh, unassimilates the world. And before he changes Lois and Jimmy back into their regular normal selves, he basically does a memory dump and makes them forget that Clark Kent is Superman. Yeah, you didn't think that would actually stay, did you? You didn't actually think the show would let her retain that knowledge, did you? I sure hope not. And I really like the quick transition in Lois's voice as she goes from being angry to Superman, and then being clueless as to why she feels like she should be angry at him. As the episode ends, Lois suspects that she's missing out on some big secret. So, I mean, four episodes deep, four out of 13, and they're pretty simple. I mean, this was mostly a big chase. And the wrinkle of learning Superman's identity for a few minutes was fun, but of course we have to, as TV did in that era, reset the status quo at the end. Can't break the toys. But even with that, it's another well-done episode. And now, let's finish things off with the Kent Family Album story, The First Day of School. And this was written by Cherry Wilkerson. And our synopsis is as follows. Clark attends his first day at school, where he meets Lana Lang. Another boy accidentally lets loose the class guinea pig and blames it on Clark. Not happy with being in the teacher's doghouse, Clark continually attempts to retrieve the pet, getting in trouble again, until he finally succeeds. Alright, so here's the next milestone. Going to school. And the first thing uh, Ma Kent does is remind Clark not to use his powers, but you know, just from watching any kind of fiction, that as soon as somebody is reminded not to do something, yeah, that's the thing they're going to do pretty much immediately. And this is also apparently the first time Clark meets Lana, who's uh, blonde in this episode and got some impressive pigtails to go, going on, on her head. And we're introduced to the class guinea pig, Adolfo, and yep, right off the bat, we know this guinea pig is going to be trouble. Because this is a super kid story. Something has to be trouble. So this one kid gets up. I believe his name is George. And he lets out the guinea pig. And uh, Clark tries to save it. But it gets away. And Clark gets the blame. Clark should have learned the early lesson here. That no good deed goes unpunished. But I guess if he learned that. Then uh, there'd be really nothing for Superman to do. Would there? So here is Clark using his x-ray vision. And he's still not finding the guinea pig. Lana couldn't care less. Uh, She's on the swing and wants Clark to push her. Which he does. A little too hard because he basically uh, pushes her so fast that she uh, goes up and around the the crossbar up top and uh, gets stuck. At the very least until uh, Clark spins her back the other way. I didn't think swinging like that is possible, but I guess it is for the sake of this episode. But meanwhile, as Lana is uh, dealing with her struggles on the swing, Clark finds Adolfo, but he burrows on the ground. So Clark is getting into a ton of trouble here on his first day of school. And this kid, George, who let the guinea pig out in the first place... It's a bit of a brat. His dad is probably the school superintendent or something, or the mayor. Who knows? So uh, Clark uh, takes a look outside, and he sees Adolfo being stalked by a cat. And when the teacher tells Clark that he has to ask to go to the bathroom, that gives Clark an idea. He asks to go to the bathroom, using that as an excuse to go out and get the guinea pig while making George look foolish because the teacher doesn't believe him when he claims he saw Clark fly. Basically, what George saw out the window was he saw Clark flooring outside of the classroom window, grabbing the guinea pig, and bringing it back to the school. All without changing his clothes. 
So this kid's going to have some tons of therapy because no one believed him when he saw something real. So Clark gets a lot of praise for finding Adolfo, and then he gets an A in art. His job was to draw his house, and an early clue is that this was not his, the Smallville house, as George points out that Clark's painting not only doesn't look like a house, but it looks like it could be from another planet. And clearly, the image Clark showed Martha Kent was an, an image of Crypt, Krypton being held up by a Christmas tree. So uh, Clark's overall, Clark's teacher said he had a good imagination, and uh, Silver Age Superman did remember some of his life on Krypton, so I guess it makes sense that this soup, this particular version of the character would too. But these Kent family album stories are so much fun, and I'm enjoying them as much as the Superman stories. Maybe even more. Next time, we're going to take a break from the Ruby Spears, and we're going to switch over to Superboy with the first two episodes, The Jewel of Tekakal and A Kind of Princess. Until then, you can leave feedback if you like, manascreen at gmail.com. You can the join the conversation over the Facebook group. Just put Man of Screen Podcast in your search feed and the show should come up. You can also find the show on Twitter at Man of Screencast. So until next time folks, we're all on the same team. Good night. The Man of Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Zumo and all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zumo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright to their original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. Email to this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show a review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast.